This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. Today, legal affairs editor Don Franzen talks with Rosalind Fuller, professor of philosophy and law at the Waterford Institute of Technology and the author of Beasts and Gods, How Democracy Changed Its Meaning and Lost Its Purpose. So here we are to discuss um, actually what is very much a book on philosophy and law. Uh, your book recently published, Beasts and Gods, which takes its title from an intriguing quote that you have at the beginning of your book, that um, basically a man or woman who does not partake of society is either a beast or a god, said Aristotle. Yes. And uh, I take it in your book, uh, my way of summing it up in my mind is that uh, these days, we're more beasts than gods uh, in our government. Would that be a fair, a fair summation, Council? I, 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 think, I think it was both, because what Aristotle was trying to say, in my view, is that anyone who believes that society is not necessary or that an individual can live without the societal structure must either be a beast, so an animal without those, need, those psychological needs, or a god, someone who, on the other end of the scale, doesn't have those needs, uh, because human society is necessary to them, maybe, I, I, I think of them often as being, you know, the psychopaths and narcissists, and in modern psychology, I doubt Aristotle would have put it that way, but I think that was kind of the underlying sentiment that he was trying to convey there, that there was a lack of focus on the importance of the society and the difficulty of living as an individual without society around you. But I think it might be fair to say that uh, you see most of the forms of government we have today as rather beastly. <laughs> would that be, would that be yeah. a way of putting it? Not, not to stretch the metaphor too No, far. no, but it's really interesting. I started doing this research because actually coming from an international law perspective, I was originally looking at how we could make international institutions like the IMF or the United Nations more democratic. And in doing that, I kind of started following this kind of red thread and how, how government works and kind of came to the conclusion that really the problem is in our own democracies and that something was going wrong there. Why wasn't why wasn't the popular will being translated into what we were actually doing in you know new laws, new treaties? Um, or was it? I don't know. I, I kind of went from that from that perspective of trying to figure that out. Um, and what I learned from that is that we have what we call representative democracy, uh, and we have this idea that you elect someone and they go on and they represent you and they represent uh, what their constituents want and therefore everything's okay, there's accountability. And I found that there were a lot of flaws with that way of thinking, and I started to look around and try to find a society that maybe did things differently. But unfortunately for me, our way of doing things, the, you know, the American way or the, the Western way, has spread itself all around the world. Uh, there weren't many societies that work too differently, nominally. And in desperation, really, I began to look at Athens, at ancient Athens. And at first, I didn't think I would find anything interesting there, because everyone knows democracy was invented in ancient Athens, and I thought, well, whatever they were doing in ancient Athens, it was more or less what we're doing today. And I found out something actually very, very different, that the way democracy was practiced in Athens was much, much different than what we call democracy today. And in fact, when we came up with this system originally, when the founding fathers of America started the system, they themselves didn't consider it very democratic. And then the work kind of took on, um, I suppose, a life of its own from there, because I had to reassess my ideas. Well, in fact, uh, you find your inspiration in the uh, democracy of ancient Athens, which has a bit of a bad name, at least with the founding fathers of this country. And you, and you quote both Hamilton 
uh, and Madison on that subject, uh, they were not fans of pure democracy. Uh, so talking about ancient Athens now, uh, how long did that system work, the system of a direct participatory democracy, such as you described in the yeah. book? There were about 100 years uh, of reform, so a kind of transition period that took about 100 years, leading from what had been a real oligarchy um, and a very unequal situation to what the Athenians considered to be full democracy. And then the full democracy lasted for uh, about 140 years. <coughs> Excuse me. And as, you, uh, <laughs> and as you point out in your book, uh, you see the, the reason that it, uh, that it ceased was due to <laughs> external uh, invasion from the Macedonians. Yeah, the Macedonians invaded not, well, they didn't so much as invade as they kind of had a kerfuffle with other Greek states because they were trying to get them on board to do what Alexander the Great and his father before him had really wanted to do, which was go and conquer Persia. And in that kind of battle and those many conflicts, Athenian democracy was gradually subordinated to the Macedonian uh, way of life, which kind of had Alexander at his head as a king and even an emperor at the end. So yeah, I do see the factors for Athenian democracy ending as having been more external than internal in their causes. Now, a great deal of your book is devoted to explaining how Athenian democracy works. I, it's too much to ask you to you know, give the details on that, but maybe you could just indicate basically um, what was different about the Athenian system as opposed to the representational democracy that we have in most of the world today. Yeah, I think the principles, there's a couple of different principles, and that's all I want to apply from Athenian democracy. I don't want to copy the Athenian lifestyle in, into modernity. But one principle was um, that participation was a duty, not a privilege. And so everyone had a duty to participate in running the country. And because everyone had a duty to do that, it wasn't something you had to win the right to do, they actually paid people for their participation. So that encouraged a lot of people to participate on a daily basis, and it lowered the barriers to participation for most people. And this lives on, to some extent, in our society as jury duty, where when we need to select people randomly, we also pay them a little bit and compensate them a little bit, because otherwise we know that some people wouldn't be, afford, be able to afford to come. Um, the other main principle of Athenian democracy was um, in the idea that everyone was more or less equally qualified to do most of the public jobs. Not all of them. They did preserve elections for some jobs that they considered very important, uh, such as being a general um, or a bookkeeper uh, or an ambassador. But for most public jobs, they actually selected people by lottery to fulfill those roles on a daily basis. And that there, there was oversight for that. The assembly had oversight uh, of those um, lottery-selected individuals. Um, however, I'd say those are kind of the two, two of the major differences between how democracy in Athens worked and democracy today works. We see democracy in a way, the ability to participate in politics as a privilege that you have to fight for, you have to go and you have to beat someone else, and win, win the right uh, to have a say in, in parliament. And we also are quite uh, obsessed with qualifications for office, even though many of the people who go on to hold office don't actually have qualifications in the field that they're given responsibility for. So there's a bit of a disconnect there. Mm -hmm. And it turns out you're not a fan of the Roman Republic. No, and I, again, when I, when I started this, I wasn't, I wasn't by any means a classicist or something. I, I didn't have any previous interest in, in, in my life. Um, I'm not, I wouldn't go so far as to say I'm not a fan. I mean, they, they had many interesting achievements. It's 
they're admirable. The Romans were admirable in many ways, but they did create a system that was an oligarchy, and they were proud of it being an oligarchy. It was a very, very hierarchical society uh, where elections had a fairly similar use to what they have today, if you kind of allow for some translations or some shifting, perhaps, ideals of, of human behavior that have changed over uh, the few thousand years since the Roman Republic was alive and kicking. Um, but yeah, no, they were very, very oligarchical, very, very uh, war-focused, obviously, very their, their economy depended on ever-expanding conquest in order uh, to fuel the level of satisfaction that was necessary for people to continue to endorse the oligarchy that they lived under. And it ultimately imploded uh, because they created a system where wealth could always be used to get power and power could always be used to get more wealth. And because of that, power and wealth were gradually concentrated in ever fewer hands. And eventually that situation got so tense, the Romans refused to um, take the necessary reforms that would have been necessary to change that situation and they eventually kind of imploded in the civil war and ended up being an empire. Um, in fact, um, uh, the, uh, that's, that's the kind of a summation of your, yeah. your analysis of, of what went wrong right. with the Roman Republic. And uh, when you talk about uh, money buying power and power buying money, um, you of course draw an analogy to our circumstances today. Yes. So, um, uh, as oftentimes we hear it said that uh, America is the new Rome, um, you're seeing a parallel in terms of the structure of the government and how power uh, gets acquired and, 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 uh, and passed along and perpetuated. Is, mm -hmm. Isn't that right? Yes. Um, when you have to fight to win that power, you have to, you know, the person who has the most resources tends to win. I mean, that's not just true in the U.S. I even analyzed local elections in Ireland to see if that held true. And actually, even in Irish local elections, which cover a very small area and a very small number of people, the more you spend, the more you're likely to win a seat. Um, and once, of course, you win that power, you have to thank all of the people who helped you get it, or they will no longer be your friends, all of your sponsors, all of your allies. Um, so what happens is it generates this vicious cycle between wealth and power. And in the case of the United States, that's particularly pronounced, especially because the United States has a very, very powerful position in world affairs. So the United States has a very powerful position on the UN Security Council, has a very powerful position at the IMF and the World Bank, and it's in a very good position to thank those people. Anyone who wins power is in a good position to thank or to give back to those who have sponsored them. So I think that's why that is particularly vicious in the United States and why there's that tendency to make an analogy uh, with Rome. It, it, it's worked very, very similar. Not only that, in addition to that, the founding fathers of the United States were quite aware of the Roman Republic, admired it much more than they admired democracy, uh, of course, and created um, a political system that was meant to bring back to life what they saw as that society that was at any rate more enlightened than the monarchy they were living under. As, as I reflected on your book, which brings up so many um, really, really interesting issues and takes this uh, um, kind of uh, uh, new approach to a lot of them, um, I, I, I had to reflect and I thought, for my, I thought to myself, in a way, um, uh, the, the object of the Roman uh, Republic was more to preserve liberty. That was like libertas was the overriding concern of the Romans. Whereas it seems, uh, and this is probably a, 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 an improper or too general a, um, a way of putting it, but it seems that the, the, 
the goal in Athens was more to create a participatory society, uh, community versus liberty, and uh, that that may be a fundamental divide in societies, like which is more important uh, uh, to each. I wonder if, if, that, uh, if this observation rings true to you in any way. Yeah, no, I thought that often myself while I was writing this. Um, and I think the question is not so much to choose one or the other as to ask where is the sustainable balance between those. Uh, two goods. Um, the Athenians did have many liberties as well. They had uh, protection of property. They were capitalists. They um, had fundamental, you know, general rights, fundamental rights. You couldn't kill another Athenian. You couldn't torture one. You couldn't, or any, any Greek really, you couldn't make them a slave. Um, you had the right to freedom of speech, uh, to private freedom of speech, and to public freedom of speech in Athens. So it's not as if those concepts weren't known. There was, however, in ancient societies, including Rome as well, um, an imperative, a sort of underlying knowledge that you were a part of that community. Back then, of course, we didn't have, co Rome became more cosmopolitan, but it wasn't very cosmopolitan at the time of the Roman Republic. At the time of the Roman Republic, they were quite restrictive on citizenship as well. So people in a certain society, be that Rome, be that Athens, in the ancient world, identified far more strongly with the people in that community. They usually practiced the same religion. They had often, uh, a high level of interlinked family networks, um, they had a shared culture, so the idea that you could survive, and of course you were only subject to the laws of that tribe or that society, um, there was a sort of understanding that other people's laws might be different, but generally that they didn't apply to you if, if you were an outsider. So. That was something I think that is very, very different today. There was kind of an understanding that the individual depended on the community to survive. I think it wasn't so much Rome as in the modern times where we have looked on rights as a very negative thing and negative in the legal sense of being used to protect you against the state uh, rather than, and against state overreach, rather than on positive rights, rights that would allow you to affect your community. And in that sense, the Athenians were different. They didn't just have negative rights. They also had some positive rights, such as the right to publicly address um, other Athenians in a setting where political decisions were going to be made. That was a very important right in Athens, and one that we don't really have today. Uh, one of the things that uh, I also thought about being, being trained as a lawyer, you're also trained in law as well, but at least in our tradition in the United States, having a Bill of Rights or having a set of limitations on what government can do uh, is like very fundamental. As you, I'm sure you know, the Constitution um, back in 1787, in order to get it through, get nine states to ratify it, they had to promise them that, well, we'll, we'll do a Bill of Rights. Okay. Just relax, don't worry, we'll do a Bill of Rights. Uh, is there, is this something that you're all concerned about? If we had a pure participatory democracy, we'll talk in a minute about how you, you envision this could happen, but shouldn't there be some governing document that restricts what uh, majorities can do in a given instance um, something akin to a Bill of Rights, and if so, what would the nature of that uh, document uh, be? Oh yes, no, absolutely, I absolutely agree with you. I'm not for, I'm not trying to advocate a lawless society or, or anything of that sort, um, and I do think we have moved on in many ways from what society was like in the ancient world, where things like genocide were absolutely the norm. Um, we've we've developed in many ways that I find very, very positive and which I wouldn't want to throw away. So I do think that anything that we would do would have to be, I, I'm not advocating at this point any kind of disruption of the court system such as it is, uh, or the legal system such as it is. Um, I believe that as far as turning or trying to transition our society towards a more participatory democracy, that we're very, very much at the beginning of that 
transition. At the moment, what I would like to see is representatives perhaps using, as I talk about in the book, their software that would actually allow people to be in communication with their constituents on uh, a daily basis and which would allow constituents to affect the votes uh, of the representatives. I think that would be a very good way to begin this process um, and you know see how that goes and perhaps move on from there. I can't say what people would do 100 years from now or 200 years from now, uh, but I do think that some kind of transition to allow more participation is really necessary because uh, the gulf between uh, the will of the people and what goes on in you know large countries and really on an international stage has gotten so wide as to virtually have taken on a life of its own at this point, in my view. What about, uh, is there a role for judicial review? In other words, the ability of courts to overturn what a majority might enact. Yeah, no, I think you yeah. have judicial review in Ireland, don't you? Of course, yeah. Yes, yeah. it's in the Constitution. Of course. <laughs> of course. Um, and they had a kind of judicial review in Athens, although it was quite different, I mean, because they would have randomly selected citizens would participate in this judicial review. There'd be a, a, a high percentage of the total population would be involved in it, but it is different in the sense that it's not a separation of powers such as we know it today. Um, and yes, I do think, I, I didn't put this in the book because when I rewrote the book for a general trade audience, but in my original thesis I did go into this uh, to some extent because I do believe that if one were to give people more power and allow more direct decision making and then a court were to overturn that will, that that would certainly provoke a greater crisis than it does today. Where these things go, they occur, but they go unremarked. You know, They're, it's not brought to that obvious clash in a way where you would say someone who's just a judge who's just you know an appointed judge or a panel of appointed judges has over has directly overturned uh the will of the majority i do think that that is something that one would need to consider very very carefully however i also see it as a problem that's considering where we are quite far down the road in my view but well the, one of the, the biggest it is an ongoing crisis in even in our form of representative democracy when the Supreme Court of the United States overturns a law which they do every now and then and and the usual shout the hue and cry anybody who doesn't agree with the opinion is that this is anti-democratic mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. here are nine unelected people in black robes sitting as philosopher kings um, you know yeah. those <laughs> philosopher kings just deciding to undo the will of 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 some state or even the federal government. Uh, yet, of course, people who favor the decisions uh, are always very happy. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, as we would not have, uh, for example, a single-sex marriage in the entire United States, nor would we have a woman's right to uh, terminate pregnancies in the United States were it not for two Supreme Court decisions, which, candidly, uh, you would have to consider anti-democratic. So. I, what I'm getting to is, are there, are there some values that need to be enshrined and actually um, preserved, even if the public, uh, public will uh, is to the contrary? Yeah, I think we always, get, we always kind of come back to the same problem here whenever, whenever several lawyers are gathered together, <laughs> which, is the, which is the issue of... It's a of, dangerous situation, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, no, is, is the issue of tyranny of the majority or tyranny of a minority. This is kind of the ultimate problem that you're always caught between and there's dangers on both sides. I've tried to think of some ways to deal with that towards towards the end of my book because the first part of my book I kind of detail what's wrong with representative democracy and in the second part of my book I try to say what are the challenges of creating a more participatory democracy and I do see this as one, my minority rights, right? In a, in a majority rule system wouldn't we just 
uh, would, isn't there the danger that we would start stripping other people of their rights, perhaps, or abusing them? Um, some of the ways that I've tried to overcome that within the system itself uh, would be, one would be cumulative voting, uh, which is a system that actually, instead of allotting people one vote each on a measure, it would give people, for example, 10 votes for 10 measures. You can place them as you want. So um, if there was a minority, for example, and there was an issue that was particularly important to a minority, um, they could say, we're going to try to place our votes on that issue and make it harder for the majority to overturn that, unless so the majority in, in was effect, equally... You, you can kind of weight your vote. You yes. Can, instead of a binary yes, no. You can say, no. I put eight votes on this, or I put all ten votes on this measure, or seven and mm -hmm. three. Um, so that's one thing one could do. The other thing I think is, in um, splitting up votes into different components you reduce kind of this vote blocking, which creates, in a way, majorities and minorities by saying, you have to all agree on this package or you get none of it. So, for example, you could have uh, a bill that has, the example I use in the book is one of, you know, women's rights, where you'd have to agree to, you know, women should get preferential custody of their children and equal pay for equal work and all those things. You might agree to some of those, but not to others. But in a way, the way party politics works is that you have to sign up to an entire program. You don't get to choose a la carte. And by, um, by splitting those up, you're kind of splitting people up as well into groups that can flow more easily between one side and the other and don't have to choose a side, because it hardens uh, positions more and more and more in, in doing that. And democracy really depends um, on a flow between majority and minority. If you have people who are consistently in the minority, they're going to become fed up with the system after a while. They're going to say, we don't want to live under the system. You know, we never win. It's always, you always win. We never win. So you need to have um, a flow where people are sometimes in the minority, sometimes in the majority, but you always have uh, the chance to put your views there um, and express them and have the, the serious chance of winning or persuading others. I think, personally, uh, that a society like Ireland, and one of the reasons I'm, I'm running in Ireland on this similar platform, uh, is that Ireland is by and large, a fairly homogenous society, um, kind of similar to Athens in many ways. We didn't have immigration for a really, really long time. Um, and although we have, there are people coming in from other countries now, including myself, um, the levels aren't, aren't, <laughs> aren't, aren't very, very high. So we haven't really developed into a blocked system like you would see in the United States, where even when you're watching the election coverage on television, uh, they're very much always talking about, you know, a vote of... 30 to 40 year olds, or a vote of homeowners, or a vote of, of uh, black people, or a vote of Latino voters, and things like that, or women even, which are, I don't even know how women can be a minority because, you know, we're, we're half the population. But, you know, they're kind of very, very split into targeting these blocks and into kind of pushing them into that. So I feel that that is something that's potentially, has the potential to be very, very divisive in a direct democracy, where instead of being suppressed, those, um, blocks can sometimes bubble to the surface and people might perceive themselves as being on the losing end of the stick all the time and become dissatisfied with the system. So that's why in a way I've kind of made it easy for myself in trying to pioneer it in a society that I feel like those tensions don't exist very much and the problem kind of getting around the problem for now. But as far as dealing with it long term, I believe some of the measures I've, ta I've talked about, cumulative voting, splitting up votes, uh, deliberation of course is another big one because people come to exchange views with people, they're forced to exchange views with people instead of just, you know, listening to um, sound bites on television or something like that. That's been proven to be very, very helpful in letting people, you know, understand where the people are coming from and being more accommodating uh, of other views that might not be their own. But there's no guarantee. I mean, and this is, I think, something that is 
definitely needs to be front and center in people's minds. There definitely aren't any guarantees. That being said, there's no guarantees with the system we're using now either. Um, we have, you know, government in, in the USA, as you know, um, we have Guantanamo Bay, NSA, surveillance, so on and so forth, things that have been ongoing for years and years and years without action being undertaken against them, effective yeah. action. Uh, we've addressed uh, some of, I don't know if you looked at it, but um, I've run a number of articles on Snowden, uh, mm -hmm. NSA, uh, I interviewed uh, Glenn Greenwald, um, the the author of um, you know the, the yes of course I know I know Glenn Greenwald yeah <laughs> yeah um, so anyway that's an issue that uh, we've been very concerned about yeah but just to to follow up on what you were just saying uh, it it suggests to me that maybe a um, a a uh, the type of participatory democracy that you're uh, favoring might take more easily take root in a homogenous or smaller society as opposed to a tremendously large and diverse society like the United States. Yeah, well, that's what I was when I, when I, I've, in writing this book. Um, I always had before my mind that the Athenians were a very small society, about maybe about three hundred thousand people, but fewer full citizens, um, far fewer. And more like 60,000 Yeah, those citizens. would be the full citizens, yes, yeah. exactly. About It fluctuated, their population fluctuated, but around that benchmark would be the full citizens. Um, so it's a very, very small society, obviously, when were they were able to communicate face-to-face -face, um, because it was so small geographically and population-wise. Um, and when I look at society today, I feel like, yes, a country like Ireland where there's only 4 million people, where it's quite easy to communicate, where there's a high level of communication between citizens already, um, and where we live in a very dense geographical area. It only takes a few hours to drive from one end of the country mm -hmm. to the other. Um, same, same as getting from one end of Los Angeles. To the yes, other. right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, seriously. It's true. <laughs> you, you have a, a social fabric already in place. Um, and I think that that is, when experimenting with something like this, although I think that, you know, because our political situation has deteriorated so much, I do feel that this is a necessary step. I do feel that, you know, it's not without its risks. And it's, if you can control some factors such as that, such as um, saying, well, we don't uh, have an issue where we're communicating anonymously with people a thousand miles away. We don't have so many genuine different interests uh, in our society. It's, this is going to be easier and we're going to run into it. We're going to hit fewer um, challenges along the way. I mean, I do see like it potentially this potentially being used in a country like the United States. I mean, you could think of scaling it. You can also use it at state level or local level, for example. Um, I think, using it nationally, I don't think that it would be worse than what is happening now. <laughs> um, but I do think that one should, of course, always you know, exercise caution. Let's talk a bit about the trial of Socrates, because yeah. that is the number one uh, example yeah. that is usually cited for what's wrong with a pure democracy, pure Athenian democracy, the fear that the, an inflamed mob will take uh, some uh, thoughtless, irresponsible action like condemn a great philosopher to death. Yeah. Uh, and you do talk about this a bit. I, I have to tell you that I, I, uh, when I read your, 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 your analysis, it reminded me very much of I.F. Stone's book on the trial of Socrates. Oh, okay. have, have you, are you familiar with yes, that book? Yes, I, I, I think I picked it up in a bookstore <laughs> okay. and read a little bit about it's, it. It's, yeah. not, it's not cited yeah. in your, in your yeah. bibliography, yeah. but... Um, I think it, it came out after I was done. <laughs> uh, no, it was written no, about 15, 20 years oh, ago. Oh, no, okay, maybe... It was, was one of the last things I.F. Stone worked one. on. Okay, all right. Anyway, he more or less took the same... Okay. Uh, a similar approach to yours which was that actually Socrates was uh, 
in favor of an oligarchy and a um, uh, leadership of the elite, and uh, but that's what got the Athenians so upset. So I'm not. Why don't you talk a little bit about this? To how you how you see uh, the action that the citizens of Athens took uh, with uh, Socrates. Yeah, well, it wasn't it wasn't just a, a question of his views, unfortunately. And his views were very, very extreme. Uh, he really advocated a program uh, of uh, brainwashing, really, for uh, Athenian children. He wanted to rewrite all of the myths to be more conducive to allowing, to making people accept uh, this rule of these philosopher kings or guardians, as he called them, They're supposed to be guardians uh, of this civilization who would be chosen from birth and um, given a particular position within society, ruling position within society. Um, and in order to do that, yes, there was a program of brainwashing. He also advocated uh, a kind of um, eugenics program that was actually quite similar to like the kind of later Nazi Lebensborn program where people would be selected to have children together and no one would know who their wife was, children shouldn't know their parents, they should all be raised in common. So it was this kind of really weird kind of communist, fascist views that Socrates had and that he propagated. And he would go around, you know, uh, propagating these views and most people thought he was nuts and just make fun of him. Um, however, there was a, a small group of people within Athens who were not very enamored of Athenian democracy and those were the very, very rich, some of the very, very rich anyway. Um, and they quite liked Socrates' point of view because he preached this very kind of purist state where there would be some kind of internal merit that one would have and, you know, the naturally most suitable people would be the leaders. And they viewed that as being them. You know, they, they were the richest and, you know, probably the most educated. So they were the natural rulers of Athens and they had been supplanted by this democracy and other Greek states Rulers like them were still in charge, like Sparta, uh, but they had to put up with this uh, democracy and this people power in Athens. So they took Socrates very seriously, and eventually uh, this led to uh, an oligarchic coup. Um, there were two oligarchic coups in Athens. Uh, the second one, uh, the one that Socrates was kind of involved in, was the rule of the 30 tyrants. So the 30 tyrants took over Athens. Um, they stripped most people of their citizenship rights basically made a list of 3,000 people, declared that anyone not on that list uh, basically had no rights at all, started executing people, um, stealing uh, their possessions, and so on and so forth. Um, and eventually they were overcome, the forces, the democratic forces regrouped themselves and uh, defeated the 30 oligarchs. But during that time of their rule, Socrates, who had been quite in thick with some of these uh, men, uh, didn't do much to act against them. There was one particular case that came up also in Socrates' trial of Leon of Salamis, where the oligarchs requested Socrates to arrest Leon of Salamis, um, and that the implication was that they were going to execute him and, and confiscate his goods, which they later did. And Socrates didn't comply with that request, but he didn't do anything against it either. He just went home. Um, so he very much stood to the side of the implementation of what many people viewed as being, you know, his playbook. He thought up the theory. Maybe he didn't implement him himself, but he also didn't do anything against it. He didn't. He didn't redeem himself. And later on, several years later, it came to a trial, um, and Socrates it was very much impressed upon Socrates that he should apologize for what had happened. Right, five percent of the um, male citizen population was killed during this debacle. So it really affected people personally. Um, 
And Socrates refused to apologize um, and said that really he should be getting free room and board because he had done such a service to the Athenian state in trying to point out to them the errors of their ways. Um, and that made his jurors very, very irate. And they convicted him, not by very much, by 40 votes, I think, somewhere in that range. And, uh, however, they sentenced him by a much greater margin to death because they were very, very annoyed with his attitude. Um, but even after that, um, they kind of tried to let him know he could you know, what they really wanted was for him to be exiled. They just wanted him out of Athens, really. Um, as was common back then, you know, jail wasn't as normal of a thing as it is now. So, however, Socrates refused to uh, go into exile and preferred to kill himself. So people respect him for his, for his iron spine. Like, he really believed in his convictions. You can't deny that. But he wasn't exactly a freedom fighter. No, uh, um, most likely not, although he has become kind of a symbol of uh, a... Uh, voice of dissent silenced by a majority, but there's a couple of things that that since this you know my background way long ago I studied philosophy so there's a few things mm -hmm. jogged in my memory as I read your account, and one was um, I think there's quite there's some controversy over whether you can actually attribute mm -hmm. uh, what is said in the Republic, which is yeah. one of Plato's last yeah. books. Yeah. That you can actually, although the speaker is Socrates, yeah. there's some controversy over whether you can actually attribute what Plato says Socrates mm -hmm. said, yeah. uh, whether Socrates really said mm -hmm. it. So yeah. that, no. that, that was one issue. Yeah. And the other thing um, that came to mind is that, as I recall, the actual charges against uh, Socrates were uh, impiety yeah. and the corruption of youth. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. didn't, the charge wasn't, you aided and abetted the 30 tyrants. Yeah. So... Um, I'm just wondering, um, you know, Rosalind, is, is your analysis of this, are you kind of pushing at the limits of, 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 of um, uh, you know, what is uh, accepted belief, or, or do you think uh, there's enough to back up your view as opposed to some of these other perspectives? Yeah, no, I, th I think there is, of, of course. <laughs> I would never do otherwise. But I do, um, I do, I would say that, yes, when we're analyzing Athens or Rome or any other ancient civilization, we always have to remember that we're working with kind of shreds of evidence from a very long time ago. We can't say for certain what happened. We have to go by what is described to us. Um, that, of course, Plato, Plato's work it's a little bit unclear. Did Socrates actually say this? Or is Plato just using Socrates as, like, a puppet to put Plato's ideas in Socrates' mouth. Um, it's hard to say for sure. What we do know is that Plato was Socrates' student. Uh, Plato also was very much connected uh, with the 30 tyrants. Um, it's hard to believe that the words he put in Socrates' mouth would have been completely off. They may not have been absolutely accurate. And I mean, in some of the other sources that we have, for example, um, there's the historian, um, probably how you pronounce it should be Thucydides, but <laughs> I always said Thucydides, who, who wrote a history of Athens. And he, for much of the time, he was not even in Athens, but he would give speeches as if he'd been there and he would base those on what other people had told him mm -hmm. had happened. This is what we have to go on when we look at all of these documents, kind of a rough approximation. Um, what I would get out of Plato's Republic is not that Socrates uh, was advocating, you know, a kind of flower child peace and prosperity and, and had never said anything remotely like like what he wrote down. But if it was exact, we don't know. It's a bit anachronistic, and I've, I've kind of incorporated that in the footnotes to let people know that we're kind of getting this a little bit backwards in this case. We don't know for sure. It's not carved in stone. But taking that together with his trial, I mean, there's two accounts of Plato's trial, uh, I'm sorry, of Socrates' trial that exist, and they largely corroborate each other um, with what went on uh, there at the trial and what Socrates had to say in his defense. 
And taking all of those things together, the evidence seems fairly strong that Socrates had views, if not 100% identical to those expressed in the Republic, at least very close to them, and that this was a major cause behind his trial, his eventual trial. Um, the thing about his trial, to answer the question about his trial, I was, yes, it wasn't conducted on charges uh, directly related to the 30 tyrants, because after uh, the democratic forces defeated the 30 tyrants, they declared an amnesty, so it's an amnesty over all crimes connected with the 30 tyrants. Um, so they couldn't charge um, Socrates with anything related to them, and eventually some citizens did come with this kind of, you know, impiety, corrupting the on blasphemy charges against Socrates, basically to shut him up because they were afraid um, of a comeback by the 30 tyrants. So in Athenian society, unlike society today, um, religious crimes were viewed as having a potential impact on the society as a whole. Um, so that's where that kind of comes from. And don't forget, Socrates did, see, they could get away with this because Socrates did uh, advocate rewriting mythology, who advocated potentially, you know, lying about what oracles had said and all of these kind of things. So what he was advocating was deeply impious from an, from an Athenian point of view, and, and all of those kind of things were criminalized at the time. Yeah, but let's say that, let's say, worst case, he actually was not just advocating a tyranny, mm -hmm. let's even say... Um, uh, let's say he went so far as to say everything that Plato attributes to him, wouldn't that be, at least in a modern point of view, be protected as free speech? I mean, we let, in the United States, we let uh, Nazis march down, the, uh, down our streets. We uh, let um, uh, people advocate everything from fascism to communism. Uh, and at least since World War I, when the Supreme Court finally... Uh, adopted a very uh, shortly, you know, in the midst of World War One, adopted a very strong position on the First Amendment that it, uh, all forms of speech are protected, even speech directed that could be considered as, as mm -hmm. uh, would have been considered as seditious before, mm -hmm. was still protected. Um, isn't it still troubling that, that, that Socrates got put to death for, for just, you know, sounding like really just having uh, opinions, opinions that were very much hated, but still just opinions. He wasn't one of the 30 tyrants, and he didn't participate directly in the tyranny. He didn't, I, th I think it's a tough case, and I think in modern society, really, the analogy is probably hate preachers, um, and really what we would probably call now terrorist ideologues like Osama bin Laden. Um, how do we deal with those kind of threats in our society today? Um, if you had, for example, let's just say ISIS were to slaughter 5% of the American population, would we continue to protect their free speech, or would we not? I mean, in Germany, I lived in Germany for five years, um, and in Germany, Nazi speech is not protected. <laughs> because, well, I know, I know. You know? So, well, well, so that's oh, kind my, of the decision that they've made. It just only, came out again, it's yes. Been yeah. And oh, and annotated. Annotated. Like, on, so, only because yeah. the copyright expired, yeah. so the state yeah. of Bavaria could no yeah. longer prohibit its publication. Yeah, yeah, yes. And Nazi symbols and, and things like that are all, are all prohibited in Germany because they have decided that they face such an existential threat from that, that the security outweighs. Uh, the benefits of free speech in that area. I mean, the U.S. has a particularly, probably, the 
best protection of free speech in the world, actually, in that sense. Um, other countries have, have closer libel laws and slander laws. Um, so the, I'd say the question, however, is how do you compare this? I mean, I think for the Athenians, it was also a very difficult decision. They also really valued free speech. Um, Socrates' trial was not an open and shut case. Even though many of the people there had been personally affected by the 30 tyrants, did see Socrates as being largely, you know, as having played a role in inspiring um, the, the 30 tyrants and wasn't at all repentant about it. Um, they didn't convict him by 100% margin. It was only by, by about 40 votes. So they had a difficult time deciding this in their society as well. And I think we're having that in our society in regards also to particularly a threat of, of terrorism because would we also say that people should be recruiting for ISIS on Twitter? I mean, probably not. We just, how we've gotten around it in a way is we criminalize belonging to a terrorist organization and all the activities associated with that. Yeah, of course, if we try to draw a distinction, at least in American First Amendment law, between pure speech and mm -hmm. speech that's directed to incite action yes. or create imminent danger. And um, it's oftentimes a difficult to distinction to draw. Yeah. Um, at least up until now, we've perhaps um, tended to uh, go on the side of protecting speech, mm -hmm. and as you say, probably the, uh, the First Amendment is probably the, the, the best protection you have in the world. Probably. But it, it is a difficult issue. I was just trying to kind of, with Socrates, I don't mean to totally exonerate the Athenians or say that everything they did was, was right. I'm just trying to kind of contextualize it and say that instead of it being a mob rule where they went around burning everyone who dissented at the stake, this was a crisis for their society and a very, very difficult decision for them. Well, it's it's interesting to go back and look at that again, and and it's a, it's a fascinating moment. And uh, as I said, it's it's become sort of the the emblem of what's wrong with a pure democracy. Well, let let me ask you about this. Where where do you see the best chances for the type of internet-based participatory democracy taking root in in the world now? Um, I think. Probably, as I said, small countries um, where um, there is a high level of, of communication within the society um, and where something like this would be relatively, would be more simple to communicate and implement across a broad base. But as I said, I could see, I could see it being used in the United States as well, um, in state level. I think at the, in the United States, the plus of the United States is that I think the idea that there is something wrong with the political system is very, very widespread. Um, I think many people uh, feel alienated, and the two-party system where you really just have to choose between two relatively similar platforms um, is something that's increasingly grating on people, and I also think that people see the problems with money in politics because they're so blatantly obvious in the United States. Um, so I can see there being really the will in the United States, um, and I, but I think for that... Um, Americans would have to be o willing to open a dialogue with each other and to stop simply screaming slogans. So I see it as being a challenge in a country as large and as divided as the United States, but by no means impossible. I mean, I, I have chosen to slice off small countries <laughs> and, and, and work with those first. So now you're running for a seat in the Irish Parliament, which is called, I learned uh, before we started this interview, the Doll. The Doll. Right? <laughs> yes. I say correctly? Very good. <laughs> so you're running for a seat in the Doll. Um, is there a little bit of a, a contradiction? I mean, you're seeking to be a representative, and yet you're saying that representative democracy is sort of uh, uh, really not a democracy at all because, uh, well, all the people that didn't vote for you, their votes will be wasted, right? 
well, they won't ultimately be wasted in my system <laughs> in what I'm planning to do. Because um, what I plan to do is basically to allow people to vote online and to influence my vote. And, I mean, I will commit to holding certain votes on divisive issues throughout my term that will allow people to have a say on that. So I know, do the majority of my constituents favor this proposal, yes or no? And how would they like me to vote? If they want me to vote in favor, I'll vote in favor. If they want me to vote against, I'll vote against. Um, so that's my commitment. Um, in doing so, yes, I tried to very much see how could we... Um, we start to realize participatory democracy in a way that is compatible with the system we're already using because of course representative democracy is the law of the land I mean it's even in Ireland it's in the constitution that this is how we run the country that you vote for representatives and they make the laws and everything's laid out right there so you can't just say let's stop all that and let's have a direct system tomorrow I also think that that would be uh, a mistake, and that people aren't used to doing to dealing with that. Um, we haven't, we don't have any experience or any memory of having done this, you know, ten years ago or twenty years ago. A little bit with referendums, but not too much. Um, so I think it's a good idea to kind of within the existing system start getting people used to the fact that your vote actually counts. Your vote has an effect. Really, what I'm just doing, and this is why it's so hard to argue against what I'm doing in in this in a legal sense, is that I'm really just implementing what we have said we're supposed to do. I mean, your representative is supposed to be your voice in Congress. Uh, they are supposed to um, represent the interests of that area that they're from. And so I've just committed that, yes, I'm actually going to do that. Um, and we'll see how things go, and we'll take it from there. And hopefully, you know, more, it would catch on more and more. Um, and then we could see where we want to move from there. Are we satisfied with that? Does that fix some of the problems we have in our society? Or do we need to go further? That raises a question in my mind. Would you possibly find yourself in a dilemma as a representative? What if your constituency uh, tell you by a majority that they want you to vote one way, but in conscience you really mm -hmm. think that's the wrong thing? Yes. Are you going to do what they say or are you going to do what your conscience says? I think if they decided something utterly terrible, which I don't think they would, that in that case I would resign. But I wouldn't vote against them. So then you're really sort of like a vicar. You're just in the worst. Uh, you're, in, the worst. <laughs> in the worst case. But uh, isn't one of the arguments for a representative system of democracy is that yes, representatives are there mostly to carry out the will of the people, to listen to their constituents, but sometimes to exercise independent judgment and do what they think is is best, even if it may be unpopular at the moment. Is it, I mean, what I'm saying yeah. is, is there a role for that? Is that a, is that a legitimate role for a representative? I, I think in a more idealized world, I can see how that would be more relevant. I think, unfortunately, the facts being as they are, where we know that most laws, I mean, some laws, many laws in the United States are even drafted by corporations at this point. So people are not making laws according to their conscience. I mean, if they were sitting there, you know, meditating and try, <laughs> trying to come up with what would be the best thing, I might have some more respect with that and feel that they tried. But uh, we know at this point that really the system has been largely, you know, subverted in a sense from what it was supposed to be, what it was meant to be. Um, so I feel that this kind of appeal to the conscience rings unfortunately hollow and you can't put, you know, a cracked egg back in the shell. So we have to recognize where we are and try to go from there. Well, here's the irony of all this, is uh, just getting to know you a little bit right now in this interview, I actually would rely on your conscience uh, to make decisions. And and you're uh, you're actually saying, if elected, I will uh, not follow my conscience. 
Yeah, it's really weird because I have to get people to trust me. <laughs> I know this. It's really strange. I know when I'm when I'm canvassing, I notice people want to know, can I trust her? And that's that's not the point in this case, but it's true. People 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 really have to trust me first, and then I have to give it back. But um, yeah, it is a kind of a kind of contradiction that you're working between two systems, uh, but one that I believe I've managed to kind of intellectually resolve at any rate for now. Well, let's just finish up by me asking you, what are your plans next? You may get a seat in the doll, you yeah. may not, but is there another book um, on the way, or what, do you, what, are you, <laughs> what are you planning to do next? I think when you read a book, you you think, that's it, I never want to write another book again <laughs> once you get finished. Um, I'm not sure, I think, for myself, I think, um, of course, I've got my, my academic work as well that I'm focused on, and some of that is in a quite different direction. But I think I would probably work towards trying to implement uh, what's in this book first. Um, there's other ways of implementing participatory democracy. Participatory budgeting, for example, is something that I feel uh, quite strongly about as well. So I'd look for ways. If I weren't to win my seat, I would look for ways to implement those things in society uh, as well. So that's, for me, kind of my life sorted. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's going to be a long, a long battle. Uh, maybe, maybe I'll write another book in the future. Something I'm quite interested in is education, oddly, in the education system. But you can only, you can only do so many things. You know, there's only 24 hours in the day. Very good. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your very interesting book, Beasts and Gods, and um, uh, look forward to seeing what uh, uh, what you may accomplish in your in your role as a representative if you if you get into the Irish Doll. Thanks very much. Okay. Thank you, Russell.